Section 14 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 1, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Matilda of Boulogne, Chapter 1, Part 2. There appears even to be a covert reference to the former position in which these princesses had stood, as rivals in Stephen's love, by the proposal made by his fond queen. She proposed, if his life were but spared, to relinquish his society, and that he should not only forever forego all claims upon the crown and succession of England and Normandy, but, taking upon himself the vows and habit of a monk, devote himself to a religious life, either as a pilgrim or a cloistered anchorite, on condition that their son, Prince Eustace, might be permitted to enjoy, in her right, the earldom of Boulogne, and his father's earldom of Mortagne, the grant of Henry I. This petition was rejected by the victorious empress, with no less contempt than all the others which Stephen's queen had ventured to prefer, although her suit in this instance was backed by the powerful mediation of Henry de Blois. This prelate, who appears to have thought more of peace than of brotherhood, was not only desirous of settling public order on such easy terms for his new sovereign, but willing to secure to his nephew the natural inheritance of his parents, of which the empress's party had obtained possession. So blind, however, was this obdurate princess, in pursuing the headlong impulse of her vindictive nature, that nothing could induce her to perceive how much it was in her interest to grant the prayer of her unhappy cousin. And she repulsed the suit of Henry de Blas so rudely, that, when next summoned to her presence, he refused to come. Queen Matilda improved this difference between her haughty rival and her brother-in-law to her own advantage, and having obtained a private interview with him, she prevailed on him, by the eloquence of her tears and entreaties, to absolve all her husband's party, whom, as Pope's legate, he had a few days before excommunicated, and to enter into a negotiation with her for the deliverance of his brother. Nor did the Queen Matilda rest here. In the name of her son, Prince Eustace, Aided by William of Ypres, Stephen's able but unpopular minister of state, she raised the standard of her captive lord in Kent and Surrey, where a strong party was presently organized in his favor, and finding that there was nothing to be hoped for from her obdurate kinswoman, the Empress Matilda, on any other terms but the unreasonable one of giving up her own fair inheritance, she, like a true daughter of the heroic house of Boulogne, and the niece of the illustrious Godfrey and Baldwin, prepared herself for a struggle, with such courageous energy of mind and promptitude of action, that many a recreant baron was shamed into quitting the inglorious shelter of his castle, and leading forth his vassals to strengthen the muster of the royal heroine. In the pages of superficially written histories, much is said of the prowess and military skill displayed by Prince Eustace at this period, but Eustace was scarcely seven years old, at the time when these efforts were made for the deliverance of his royal sire. It is, therefore, plain to those who reflect on the evidence of dates, that it was the high-minded and prudent queen, his mother, who avoided all Amazonian display, by acting under the name of her son. Her feminine virtues, endearing qualities, and conjugal devotion, 
had already created the most powerful interest in her favor while reports of the pride and hardness of heart of her stern relative and namesake the new domina began to be industriously circulated through the land by the offended legate henry de blois william of malmesbury mentions expressly that the empress matilda never bore or received the title of regina or queen of england but that of domina or lady of england on her broad seal which she caused to be made for her royal use at winchester she entitles herself rominorum regina matildis and in a charter granted by her just after the death of her brother and champion robert earl of gloucester she styles herself regina rominorum et domina anglorum the seal to which we have just alluded bears the figure of the granddaughter of the norman conqueror crowned and seated on the king's bench with a sceptre in her right hand, but bearing neither orb nor dove, the symbols of sovereign power and mercy. She was not an anointed queen, neither had the crown royal ever been placed on her brow. The garland of fleur-de-lis, by which the folds of her matronly wimple are confined, is a simpler form than the royal diadem of the Anglo-Norman sovereigns, as shown on the broad seals of William Rufus, Henry I, and Stephen probably an alteration would have been made if the coronation of matilda as sovereign of england had ever taken place but the consent of the city of london was an indispensable preliminary to her inauguration and to london she proceeded in person to obtain this important recognition though the majority of the city authorities were disposed to favor the cause of stephen for the sake of his popular consort matilda of Boulogne, the saxon citizens when they heard that the daughter of mold their good queen claimed their homage looked with reverence on her elder claim and threw open their gates to receive her with every manifestation of affection the first sentence addressed to them by this haughty claimant of the crown of st edward was the demand of an enormous subsidy the citizens of london replied by inquiring after the great charter granted by her father ye are very impudent to mention privileges and charters to me when ye have just been supporting my enemies was the gracious rejoinder her prudent and gallant brother robert of gloucester who stood by her side immediately perceived that the citizens of london stood aghast at this intimation of their new sovereign's intention to treat them as a conquered people endeavored to divert the public rage by a most discreet speech beginning with the complimentary address ye citizens of london who of olden time were called barons although the valiant robert was a most complete and gracious orator we have no space for his speeches so carefully preserved by the contemporary historians nor could all his conciliatory eloquence draw the attention of the londoners from the harshness of their new liege lady her uncle king david was present at this scene and earnestly persuaded the empress to adopt a more popular line of conduct but in vain the londoners craved leave to retire to their hall of common council in order to provide the subsidy the empress domina was waiting in full security at the new palace at westminster built by her uncle william the red king till the deputies from the city of london should approach to offer on their knees the bags of gold she had demanded when suddenly the bells of london rang out an alarm and from every house in london and its vicinity issued a man with a sword in his hand just says the old chronicler like bees swarming round the hive when it is attacked 
a formidable army soon gathered in the streets ready to defend themselves from demands of subsidies and all other grievances the empress domina with her norman and angevin chevaliers by no means liked the idea of charging this posse in their own crooked and narrow streets where chivalric evolutions could avail but little they therefore mounted their steeds and fled scarcely they cleared the suburbs when a troop of citizens broke down the doors of the palace and finding no one there plundered the effects left behind the empress with her barons and chevaliers galloped on the road to oxford and when they had arrived there her train had become so small with numerous desertions that with the exception of robert of gloucester she entered it alone her uncle king david who left london with her would have lost either his life or liberty but for the fidelity of his godson david oliphant thoroughly disgusted with the obstinacy and haughtiness of his niece he made the best of his way to his own borders it is said that he held her ever after in low estimation a strong reaction of popular feeling in favor of stephen or rather of stephen's queen followed this event the counties of kent and surrey were already her own and prepared to support her by force of arms and the citizens of london joyfully received her within their walls once more henry de blois had been induced more than once to meet his royal sister-in-law secretly at guildford thither she brought the young prince her son to assist her in moving his powerful uncle to lend his aid in replacing her husband on the throne henry de blois touched by the tears and entreaties of these interesting supplicants and burning with rage at the insolent treatment he had received from the imperial virago whom camden quaintly styled a niggish old wife solemnly promised the queen to forsake the cause of her rival immediately on his return to winchester the prelate fortified his castle and having prepared all things for declaring himself in favor of his brother he sent messengers to the queen begging her to put herself at the head of the kentishmen and londoners and march with her son prince eustace to winchester the empress matilda and the earl of gloucester having some intelligence of henry de blois proceedings advanced from oxford accompanied by david king of scotland at the head of an army to overawe him when they approached the walls of winchester the empress sent a herald to the legate requesting a conference as she had something of importance to communicate but to this requisition henry de blois only replied parabo me that is i will prepare myself and finding that the norman party in winchester were at present too strong for him he left the city and retired to his strong castle in the suburbs causing at the same time so unexpected an attack to be made on the empress that she had a hard race to gain the shelter of the royal citadel queen matilda with her son and sir william ypres at the head of the londoners and the kentish men were soon after at the gates of winchester and the empress was now closely blockaded in her palace that she had ample cause to repent of her vindictive folly in driving her gentle cousin to desperate measures by repulsing the humble boon she had craved with such earnest prayers for nearly two months the most destructive warfare of famine fire and sword was carried on in the streets of winchester till the empress matilda dreading the balls of fire which were nightly thrown from the legate's castle and which had already destroyed upwards of twenty stately churches and several monasteries prevailed on her gallant brother to provide for her retreat this he and her uncle david king of scotland did 
by forcing their way through the besiegers at Swords Point, but it was at the cost of the noble Earl's liberty. While the Empress and the King of Scotland, by dint of hard riding, escaped to Lutgers Hall, the Earl of Gloucester arrested the pursuit, by facing about and battling on the way, till almost all his followers were slain, and he was compelled to surrender, after a desperate defense. This skirmish took place on the 14th of September, 1141. The Earl of Gloucester was conducted to Queen Matilda at Winchester, and she with great joy committed him to the charge of William of Ypres, as a sure hostage for the safety of the king, her husband. The wife of King Stephen obtained the praise and admiration of all parties, by her generous conduct to her illustrious captive, for, instead of loading him with chains, and subjecting him to the same cruel treatment under which her beloved lord was suffering, the confinement of the Earl of Gloucester, at Rochester Castle, was alleviated by every indulgence, consistent with the safe custody of his person. The Empress and her party, with some difficulty, fled from Lutgers Hall to Devizes, where she was so closely pursued by the Queen's troops, that she only escaped their vigilance by personating a corpse, wrapped in grave clothes, and being placed in a coffin, which was bound with cords, and borne on the shoulders of some of her trusty partisans, to Gloucester, the stronghold of her valiant brother, where she arrived, faint and weary, with long fasting and mortal terror. Her party was so dispirited by the loss of her approved counsellor and trusty champion, the Earl of Gloucester, that she was compelled to make some overtures to the queen, her cousin, for his release. But Matilda would hear of no other terms than the restoration of her captive husband, King Stephen, in exchange for him. This the empress peremptorily refused in the first instance, though she offered a large sum of gold and twelve captive earls of stephen's party as her brother's ransom queen matilda was inflexible in her determination never to resign her illustrious prisoner on any other condition than the release of her royal husband although she had treated the captive earl most humanely she now had recourse to threats and she caused the countess of gloucester to be informed that unless the king were speedily exchanged for the earl she should cause him to be transported to one of her strong castles in Boulogne, there to be kept as rigorously as Stephen had been by the orders of the Empress and her party. Not that it was in the gentle nature of the Queen, to have made these harsh reprisals on a gallant gentleman, whom the fortune of war had placed at her disposal. Nor did she proceed to the use of threats till she had tried, by eloquent entreaties, to win Earl Robert to use his influence with his sister for the release of her husband. She had even promised that he should be restored to all his possessions and honors, and entrusted with the principal administration of the government, if he would conclude a peace, securing England to Stephen and Normandy to the Empress. Gloucester's high principles, however, would not admit of his entering into any treaty, which he considered prejudicial to his sister's interest, and, as essential as his presence was to her, the obdurate temper of the Empress would never have suffered her to purchase his release, at the price of restoring Stephen to his queen and friends, had it not been for the resolute determination displayed by her sister-in-law, Amabel, Countess of Gloucester. Fortunately, the person of Stephen happened to be in the possession of this lady, who was the castellane of Bristol during the captivity of Gloucester, her redoubted lord. Her anxiety for his restoration, being no less than that of the queen for the liberation of Stephen, these two ladies contrived to arrange a sort of amicable treaty, which ended in the exchange of their illustrious prisoners. 
This memorable event took place in the month of November, 1141. Queen Matilda was not long permitted to enjoy the reunion which took place between her and her beloved consort, after she had succeeded in procuring his deliverance from the fetters of her vindictive rival, for nothing could induce the empress to listen to any terms of pacification, and the year 1142 commenced with a mutual renewal of hostilities between the belligerent parties. While Stephen was pursuing the war at York, with the fury of a newly enfranchised lion, he was seized with a dangerous malady. His affectionate queen hastened to him on the first news of his sickness, which was so sore, that for some hours he was supposed to be dead, and was only restored to life by the indefatigable care of his faithful consort. In all probabilities, his illness was a return of the lethargic complaint, with which he had once or twice been afflicted, at the commencement of the internal troubles of his realm. Through the tender attentions of his queen, Stephen was, however, soon after able to take the field again, which he did with such success, that the empress's party thought it high time to acclaim the assistance of Geoffrey, Count of Anjou, who was exercising the functions of Duke of Normandy. Geoffrey, who had certainly been treated by his imperial spouse, her late father, King Henry, and her English partisans, as a fellow of no reckoning, thought proper to stand on ceremony, and required the formality of an invitation, preferred by the Earl of Gloucester in person, before he would either come himself, or part with the precious heir of England and Normandy, Prince Henry. The Empress, impatient to embrace her first-born son, and to obtain the Angevin and Norman succors to strengthen her party, prevailed upon her brother to undertake this mission, to which he was also urged by all the Empress's adherents. Gloucester left her, as he thought, safe in the most impregnable castle of Oxford, and embarked for Normandy. As soon as he was gone, the memorable siege of Oxford took place, which was pushed by Stephen with the greatest ardor, in the hope of capturing the empress. But when the besieged were reduced to such distress, for want of provision, that a surrender was inevitable, the haughty domina, by a shrewd exercise of female ingenuity, eluded the vengeance of her exasperated rival. One night she, with only four attendants, clothed in white garments, stole through a postern that opened upon the river Thames, which at that time was thickly frozen over and covered with snow. The white draperies in which the empress and her little train were enveloped from head to foot, prevented the sentinels from distinguishing their persons, as they crept along with noiseless steps under the snow banks, till they were at a sufficient distance from the castle to exert their speed. They then fled with headlong haste, through the blinding storms that drifted full in their faces, as they scampered over hedges and ditches, and heaps of snow and ice, till they reached Abington, a distance of six miles, where they took horse, and arrived safely at Wallingford the same night. The Saxon annals aver that the Empress was let down from one of the towers of Oxford Castle, by a long rope, and that she fled on foot all the long weary miles to Wallingford. At Wallingford, the Empress was welcomed by her faithful brother, Robert of Gloucester, who had just returned from Normandy with her son, Prince Henry, at the sight of whom, says the chroniclers, she was so greatly comforted, that she forgot all her troubles and mortifications, for the joy she had of his presence. Thus we see that the sternest natures are accessible to the tender influences of maternal love, powerful in the heart of an empress as in that of a peasant. Geoffrey, Count of Anjou, having no great predilection for the company of his Juno, 
thought proper to remain in Normandy with his son, the younger Geoffrey of Anjou. After three years of civil strife, during which the youthful Henry learned the science of arms under the auspices of his redoubted uncle, the Earl of Gloucester, the Count of Anjou sent a splendid train of Norman and Agavin nobles to England to reclaim his heir. Earl Robert of Gloucester accompanied his princely Elivay to Warham, where they parted, never to meet again, for the brave Earl died of a fever at Gloucester, October 31st, 1147, and was interred at Bristol. With this great man and true-hearted brother died the hopes of the Empress Matilda's party for the present, and she soon after quitted England, having alienated all her friends, by the ungovernable violence of her temper and her overweening haughtiness. The great secret of government consists mainly in an accurate knowledge of the human heart, by which princes acquire the art of conciliating the affections of those around them, and by graceful condensations, win the regard of the lower orders, of whom the great body of the nation, emphatically called the people, is composed. The German education and self-sufficiency of the empress prevented her from considering the importance of these things and, as a matter of course, she failed in obtaining the great object for which she contended. Away with her, was the cry of the English population. We will not have this Norman woman to reign over us. Yet this unpopular claimant of the throne was the only surviving child and representative of their adored Queen Matilda, the daughter of a Saxon princess, the descendant of the great Alfred, but the virtues of Matilda of Scotland, her Holy Spirit, her graces of mind and manners, had been inherited not by her daughter, who had been removed in her tender childhood from under the maternal influence, but by her niece and name-child, Matilda of Boulogne, who was undoubtedly educated under her wise superintendence, and exhibited all the excellence of her prototype. The younger Queen Matilda was, however, not only one of the best, but one of the greatest women of the age in which she lived. That she was perfect in that which we have shown, to be the most important of all royal accomplishments, the art of pleasing, that art in which her haughty cousin the Empress was so little skilled, was acknowledged even by that diplomatic statesman priest, Henry de Blois, and she was of more effectual service in her husband's cause, than the swords of the foreign army which Stephen had rashly called to the support of his tottering throne. Stephen and Matilda kept their Christmas this year, 1147, at Lincoln, with uncommon splendor, for joy of the departure of their unwelcome kinswoman, the Empress Matilda, and the re-establishment of the public peace. And so completely did Stephen consider himself a king again, that in defiance of certain oracular denouncements of evil, to any monarch of England, who should venture to wear his crown in that city on Christmas Day. He attended mass in his royal robes and diadem, against the advice of his sagest counselors, both temporal and spiritual. While at Lincoln, Prince Eustace, the son of Stephen and Matilda, then in his thirteenth year, received the oath of fealty from such of the barons, as could be prevailed upon to acknowledge him as heir apparent to the throne. Stephen and Matilda were desirous of his being crowned at Lincoln, in hopes of securing to him the right of succession, but the nobles would not consent. The mind of Queen Matilda appears, during the year 1148, to have been chiefly directed to devotional matters. It was in this year that she carried into execution her long-cherished design, of founding and endowing the hospital and church of St. Catherine by the tower, for the repose of the souls of her deceased children, Baldwin and Maud. 
the same year queen matilda jointly with stephen founded the royal abbey of feversham in kent and personally superintended its erection for many months she resided in the nunnery of st austin's canterbury to watch the progression of the work it being her desire to be interred within that stately church which she had planned with such noble taste there is great probability that she was at this time in declining health having gone through many sore trials and fatigues both of mind and body during the long protracted years of civil war the repose of cloistered seclusion and heavenward employment in works of piety and benevolence whereby the royal matilda sought to charm away the excitement of the late fierce struggle in which she had been forced to take so active a part were succeeded by fresh anxieties of a political nature caused by the return of the young henry fitz empress in the following year eleven forty nine and by the evident intention of her uncle david of scotland to support his claims the king her husband apprehending that an attack on the city of york was meditated flew to arms once more on which david after conferring knighthood on his youthful kinsman retired into scotland and prince henry returned to normandy not feeling himself strong enough to bide the event of a battle with stephen at that period a brief interval of tranquillity succeeded the departure of these invading kinsmen but queen matilda lived not long to enjoy it worn out with cares and anxieties this amiable princess closed her earthly pilgrimage at henningham castle in essex the mansion of alberic de Vere, where she died of a fever may third eleven fifty one in the fifteenth year of her husband's reign stephen was forty-seven years old at the time of this his irreparable loss matilda was probably about the same age or a little younger this lamented queen was interred in the newly erected abbey of feversham of which she had been so munificent a patroness having endowed it with her own royal manor of lillichurch which she gave to william of ypres for his demesne of feversham the spot chosen by her as the site of this noble monastic establishment which was dedicated to saint saviour and filled with black monks of cluny the most valued of all the gifts presented to queen matilda to her favorite abbey was a portion of the holy cross which had been sent by her illustrious uncle godfrey of boulogne from jerusalem and was therefore regarded as doubly precious none but heretics presuming to doubt of its being vera crux here says that indefatigable antiquary weaver lies interred maud wife of king stephen the daughter of eustace earl of boulogne brother of godfrey and baldwin kings of jerusalem by mary etheling sister to matilda etheling wife to henry her husband's predecessor she died at henningham castle in essex on the third of may eleven fifty one whose epitaph i found in a nameless manuscript anno mileno sin quinquagenoque primo quo sua non minuit sed sibi nostra tollit matilda felix conjux stephanie quoque regis occidit insignis moribus et titulis cultrix vera dei cultrix et pauperisi hic subnixa deo quo fruerator eo feminisi qua polis considere queque meretor angelicus manibus diva hic regina tenetur the monastic latin of this inscription may be thus rendered in the year one thousand one hundred and fifty one not to her own but to our great loss the happy matilda the wife of king stephen died ennobled by her virtues as by her titles 
she was a true worshipper of god and a true patroness of the poor she lived submissive to god that she might afterwards enjoy his presence if ever woman deserved to be carried by the hands of the angels to heaven it was this holy queen queen matilda left three surviving children by her marriage with stephen eustace william and mary the eldest prince eustace was after her death dispatched by stephen to the court of his royal brother-in-law louis the seventh to solicit his assistance in recovering the duchy of normandy which on the death of geoffrey of anjou had reverted to henry fitz empress the rightful heir louis who had good reason for displeasure against henry reinvested eustace with the duchy and received his homage once more stephen then in the hope of securing his beloved son's succession to the english throne endeavored to prevail on the archbishop of canterbury to crown him as the acknowledged heir of england but neither the archbishop nor any other prelate could be induced to perform this ceremony lest as they said they should be the means of involving the kingdom once more in the horrors of civil war according to some historians stephen was so exasperated at this refusal that he shut all the bishops up in one house declaring his intention to keep them in ward till one or other of them yielded obedience to his will the archbishop of canterbury however succeeded in making his escape to normandy and persuaded henry plantagenet who by his marriage with eleanor duchess of aquitaine the divorced queen of france had become a powerful prince to try his fortune once more in england henry who had now assumed the titles of the duke of normandy and aquitaine and count of anjou landed in england january eleven fifty three before preparations were made to oppose his victorious progress he marched directly to the relief of his mother's friends at wallingford and arrived at a time when eustace was carrying on operations in the absence of the king his father who had gone to london to procure fresh supplies of men and money eustace maintained his position till the return of stephen when the hostile armies drew up in battle array with the intention of deciding the question between the rival claimants of the crown at swords points an accidental circumstance prevented the deadly effusion of kindred blood that seemed as if doomed to stain the snow of the wintry plain of egola that day stephen's horse says matthew paris reared furiously thrice as he advanced to the front to array his battle and thrice fell with his forefeet flat to the earth and through his royal rider the nobles exclaimed it was a portent of evil and the men murmured among themselves on which the great william de albini the widower of the late dowager queen adelicia took advantage of the pause which this superstitious panic on the part of stephen's adherents had created to address the king on the horrors of civil war and reminding him of the weakness of his cause and the justice of that of his opponent implored him to avoid the effusion of his subjects blood by entering into an amicable arrangement with henry plantagenet stephen and henry accordingly met for a personal conference in a meadow at wallingford with the river thames flowing between their armies and there settled the terms of pacification whereby stephen was to enjoy the crown during his life on condition of solemnly guaranteeing the succession to henry plantagenet to the exclusion of his own children henry on his part swore to confirm to them the earldom of boulogne the inheritance of their mother the late queen matilda 
and all the personal property and possessions enjoyed by Stephen, during the reign of his uncle, Henry I. After the treaty was ratified, William de Albini, first affixing his sign manual, as the head of the barons, by the style and title of William Earl of Chichester, Stephen unbraced his armor, in token of peace, and Henry saluted him as king, adding the endearing name of father, and if Polydor Virgil, and other chroniclers who relate this incident, are to be believed, not without good reason. Of a more romantic character, however, is the circumstantial account of the cause of this pacification, as related by that courtly historian, Matthew Paris, which, though he only mentions it as a report, is of too remarkable a nature to be omitted here. We give the passage in his own words. The empress, they say, who had rather have been Stephen's paramour than his foe, when she saw him and her son arrayed against each other, and their armies ready to engage on Egalaw Heath, caused King Stephen to be called aside, and coming boldly up to him, she said, What mischievous and unnatural thing go ye about to do? Is it meet the father should destroy the son, or the son kill the sire? For the love of the Most High God, fling down your weapons from your hands. Sith that, as thou well knowest, he is indeed thine own son. For you know well how we twain were acquaint before I wedded Geoffrey. The king knew her words to be sooth, and so came the peace. The most doubtful part of this story is, that the empress is represented as making this communication personally to Stephen, yet no other historian mentions that she was in England at this period, much less that she was the author of the pacification. Lord Littleton, however, in his history of Henry the Second, says, that at one of his interviews with Stephen, previous to the settlement of the succession on Henry, that prince is stated by an old author to have claimed the king for his father, on the confession of the empress, when she supposed herself to be on a deathbed. Rapin also mentions the report. That which lends most color to the tale is the fact that the empress Matilda's second son, Geoffrey, on the death of his father, set up a claim to the earldom of Anjou, grounded on the supposed illegitimacy of Prince Henry. This ungracious youth went so far as to obtain the testimony of the Agavin barons, who witnessed the last moments of the count his father, to the assertion that the expiring Geoffrey named him as the successor to his dominions, because he suspected his elder brother to be the son of Stephen. Prince Eustace was so enraged, at the manner in which his interests had been compromised by the Treaty of Wallingford, that he withdrew, in a transport of indignation, from the field, and gathering together a sort of free company, of the malcontent adherents of his father's party, he marched towards Bury St. Edmunds, ravaging and laying under contribution all the country through which he passed. The monks of Bury received him honorably, and offered to refresh his men, but he sternly replied, that he came not for meat, but money, and demanded a subsidy, which being denied by the brethren of St. Edmund, they being unwilling, they said, to be the means of raising fresh civil wars, which fell heavily on all peacefully disposed men, but heaviest of all on the clergy. Eustace, reckless of all moral restraints, instantly plundered the monastery, and ordered all the corn and other provisions belonging to these civil and hospitable ecclesiastics, to be carried to his own castle, near the town, and then sitting down to dinner in a frenzy of rage, the first morsel of meat he essayed to swallow choked him, says the chronicler, who relates this act of wrong and violence. 
according to some historians eustace died of a brain fever on the tenth of august eleven fifty three his body was conveyed to feversham abbey and was interred by the side of his mother queen matilda eustace left no children by his wife constance of france william the third son of stephen and matilda inherited his mother's earldom of boulogne which together with that of mortagne and all his father's private property were secured to him by the treaty of wallingford he is mentioned in that treaty by name as having done homage to henry of anjou and normandy shortly afterwards however this prince though of tender age entered into a conspiracy with some of the flemish mercenaries to surprise the person of prince henry on barham downs as he was riding from dover in company with the king stephen himself is not wholly clear from a suspicion of being concerned in this plot which failed through an accident which befell prince william for just before the assault should have taken place he was thrown by his meddlesome steed and had the ill luck to break his leg henry on receiving a secret hint of what was in agitation took the opportunity of the confusion created by william's fall to ride off at full speed to canterbury and soon after sailed for normandy it does not appear that he bore any ill-will against william de blois for this treacherous design as he afterwards knighted him and confirmed to him his mother's earldom and whatever was possessed by stephen before his ascension to the throne this prince died in the year eleven sixty while attending henry the second on his return home from the siege of toulouse the lady marie de blois the only surviving daughter of stephen and matilda took the veil and was abbess of the royal nunnery of rumsey in which her grandmother mary of scotland and her great-aunt matilda the good queen were educated when her brother william count of boulogne died without issue the people of boulogne desiring to have her for their countess matthew the brother of philip count of flanders stole her from her convent and marrying her became in her right count of boulogne she was his wife ten years when by sentence of the pope she was divorced from him and forced to return to her monastery she had two daughters by this marriage who were allowed to be legitimate and ida the eldest inherited the earldom of boulogne in right of her grandmother matilda stephen's queen stephen died at dover of the iliac passion october twenty fifth eleven fifty four in the fifty-first year of his age and the nineteenth of his reign he was buried by the side of his beloved queen matilda and their unfortunate son eustace in the abbey of feversham his body rested here in quietness says stowe till the dissolution when for the trifling gain of the lead in which it was lapped it was taken up uncoffined and plunged into the river so uncertain is man yea the greatest princes of any rest in this world even in the matter of burial honest old speed by way of conclusion to this quotation from his brother chronicler adds this anathema and restless may their bodies be also who for filthy lucre thus deny the dead the quiet of their graves End of section 14